Hey, Nora. Hey, Sandy. What's good? It's sunny. It's only minus one degree. Sorry, Americans, I can't translate that into your language. Yeah, everything's everything's good. Good. I mean, other than like our government, everything is great. <laughs> I mean, it is also sunny out here. I think I beat you on that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but where's your snow? <laughs> the temperature is excellent. Like, I don't want no snow, <laughs> okay? <laughs> Decided to go to school in L.A. for a reason. But yeah, our government really fucking blows. And let's take them to task a little bit. But before that, I bet you have some people to shout out. I do have some people to shout out. I want to say thank you so much to Jonathan, to Paris, Mat- Matthias, Matthias. It's, and in French, I would say Matthias, but it's probably Matthias. <laughs> Sorry for that to your name. Olivia and Bird, who I may or may not be related to. So thanks to all those folks. And Oh, Bird is in Matt, Bird, Loretto? Yeah, yeah. Oh, thanks, Matt. Yeah. He he's great because he actually texts me uh, regularly about the show. So um thanks to everyone who is related to both of us and who listens. <laughs> <laughs> yes, thank you. And also last week we, we announced a contest. Um we forgot that there's a bit of a, a time delay between uh when we when we record, when we broadcast, and then when people listen. And so we have to extend this contest another week because it's Sunday, uh, tomorrow is Monday, and a lot of people tomorrow will have been listening to last week's episode and only finding out about the contest tomorrow. So next Sunday, we will draw the names from our competition out of a hat or whatever I come up with. And Sandy, what do they win and what do they have to do to enter? They will win... A, their own copy of Until We Are Free, uh, which is a book that I helped to co-edit with my wonderful co-editors, Rodney DeVerlis and Cyrus Marcus Ware. It is a collection of essays and art um, about blackness in Canada. Uh, and to enter, we need you to send us an email, including two very important things. Well, three. One, your name. Two, your address, so we can get that book to you. And three, uh, some sort of uh, explanation or story or narrative about an action that you have been involved in or something that you've done uh, to make this world a little bit of a better place. Some sort of of, uh, action that you've taken. It can be as big as going to a rally or organizing a rally, uh, to sending a letter uh, to your uh, MP or making a phone call, whatever it is, let us know uh, what you've been doing uh, to, to make some change in this world. Yeah. And we will draw, that is next Sunday, the date, I don't know, is that the, the 29th, I think, of February? That is the 29th of February, yes. That's the day that all Canadian media says, see you next year, Black Canada. (laughs) (laughs) Yep. (laughs) Sandy, what are we talking about today? We are going to talk today about education. And generally, you know, we we know that there's some strikes going on and folks are are, um, talking about uh, different things that pertain to education. Uh, There was a story on The Current recently about uh, mental health in campuses. So we want to talk about education. But before we do that, we do want to say a few words about some of the updates this week with respect to what's so it in. So... 
our prime minister, who had been on a beautiful jaunt uh, to Africa, okay, um, unspecified country Africa, as much of the the, unif- uh, the Canadian media uh, talked about it. Uh, and <laughs> while the protests were happening, was taking him uh, pictures of himself at the door of no return uh, with good friend and, I don't know, political compadre, Masai Ujiri, who, if you didn't know, is the owner of the Raptors. That's what he was doing uh, while protesters uh, in Canada were shutting down essentially rail transportation um, and uh, in a really offensive way, taking pictures at this door of no return, using it uh, as a moment to, I don't know, get some Instagram photos. Like, I'm not really sure what he was trying to do because in absence of this man uh, ever actually doing anything to support black communities and, of course, the wild uh, photos of him in blackface, like, I don't understand what he thought he was doing. Like, I guess he was like, it's February. Let me go take a trip uh, to Africa with some black people and take some photos and that'll be good. Uh, and, you know, folks were pretty offended by, about that. But anyway, that's happening. He comes back back home he's people are like hey there's these protests happening he says oh crap i guess i gotta cut short my trip to the bahamas which i guess was going to be his other uh black history month jaunt uh to a place where black people live uh not canada of course which is another place that we live but you know i digress and then he says i demand that the protesters stop this right now <laughs> and i i want i want these these hereditary chiefs to to you know like st- behave yourselves <laughs> stop this call it off this is canadians are now impatient and it is time uh for for uh, everything to be moving business as as usual again once again And I just can't, you know, this is a man who literally said from his own mouth that he was going to be engaging with Indigenous communities, First Nations, as nation-to-nation relationships. And I don't think I have ever heard this man speak quite so forcefully to, mm, I don't know, Donald Trump, who has given the whole world lots to complain about could you imagine if he had that sort of forcefulness at the time when america um uh went through with that debacle of uh, a strike in iraq that ended up killing Qasem Soleimani, one of the worst disasters leading to uh, a mass Canadian life um, in our history. Like, did he speak so forcefully to that leader? No, of course not, because he believes that he can control uh, Indigenous communities and First Nations. He believes that they are, in fact, beneath him and that he is in some sort of like fatherly type role where he can tell a whole whole groups of people to behave themselves and that is absolutely abhorrent. Yeah, um so while you were talking I, I realized that I I hadn't turned on my microphone and so I just want to apologize to everybody for the uh, earlier sound uh, that I was producing but I'm I'm good now. <laughs> so sorry about that as much as I do this I still make <laughs> some mistakes. Yeah, I I think that the most annoying thing about 
Trudeau's approach to all of this is is not just that he was outside of the country and then shows up and is like, that is enough, uh, and being all like strong talking, like serious guy. But the 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 line that he has fed the the media and journalists and and they have gone with it as if it's true is that Trudeau has done everything, and now is the time for the blockades to come down because he has tried everything. And I heard it yesterday on the news. I heard it this morning on the news. I heard it this morning on on the House. Uh, Chris Chris Hall said it several times. And I've never heard any journalists detail for me what doing everything is. Like, so did he travel to Wet'suwet'en? No. Mm -hmm. Did he meet with the hereditary chief leadership? No. Has he even met with the band council chief leadership? No. Has he... I don't know. Has he done fucking anything? Like, we, we know that the police were called in. They're probably the BCR stampede, so maybe that has something more to do with what well, does have more to do with uh, the Premier of British Columbia, John Horgan. What in the fuck did Trudeau do? What has he done? Uh, he certainly hasn't insisted that via when they were canceling all of their passenger rail that they find other ways to transport their passengers. No, he let via rail just go, ah, fuck it. Sorry, everybody. You have to find your own way. We're not even going to have uh, shuttle buses, which he could have forced them to do that. Um, he could have come home, come, come uh, cut his trip home uh, shorter, sooner. Cut his trip short, yeah. Cut his trip short, <laughs> my God. <laughs> Uh, and so, no. And so all we have is that he has said that he's done everything he can. And journalists are like, oh, yeah, 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 yeah. He's done everything he can. It's it's really um, uh, such a good example of how distorted the, the coverage of this issue has been. And, you know, the, the protests have cut to the heart of our of our economy, like stopping rail in Canada stops the flow of a lot of goods that people um, need. Uh, a lot of people need those goods to make a lot of money. <laughs> so there's that whole uh, set of the population that's super pissed right now. But no, what the liberals haven't, haven't done uh, everything. I, maybe even we could say they haven't actually done a- anything. And, <laughs> and I think that uh, the, the, you know, the, the liberals are going to say what they're going to say. That's politics. And so fuck every single journalist that hasn't been able to actually say, whoa, 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 Bill Blair, have you really done anything here? Have you done anything <laughs> at fucking all? The other thing, I know that we're going to move to education really soon. The other thing I want to highlight for people is to pay really close attention to the rhetoric around critical infrastructure in all of this. We've got uh, Aaron O'Toole, who's running for the Conservatives, who might win because he's not like, I mean, like Peter McKay is is a very fucking stupid man. And I'm not sure that the liberal, uh, the the conservatives, whatever, the blue liberals uh, want someone like Peter McKay at the head. They actually do require someone who can think on his own. Um, And so Aaron O'Toole is someone that we should be taking seriously as potentially leading the conservative party. And he was saying that he wants to criminalize people tampering with critical infrastructure. And people were reporting on it. People were commenting on it, uh, saying, oh, you know, that's uh, that's where the conservatives are. They want to criminalize this like in a major way. So it's already illegal to tamper with probably private property. But critical infrastructure like rail would be enough to, I don't know, get you. uh, They probably want to bring back the death penalty. Right. So we could imagine whatever kind of levels of uh, that's all. It was all kind of a joke. But anyway, 
what you have to keep in mind if you are new to paying attention to this stuff is that Stephen Harper already made, um, he considered it terrorism if you are attacking critical infrastructure in this country. And I believe the maximum sentence for that was a life sentence. And so what exactly do the, the conservatives want to do that would be even more than what Stephen Harper did, which the liberals didn't undo. <laughs> so... Mm-hmm. Uh, liberals, there's still time. I, they could, yeah, that would be nice. Uh, you know, and then we've got uh, Peter McKay that's uh, applauding vigilante justice. So things are really, really bad. We'll probably maybe next week talk a bit more about how things have moved um, on this. But everyone should be paying attention to the rhetoric that all sides are using, and do not forget that Bill Blair is p- playing a critical role in this, uh, in their infrastructure. No, in their I'm going to say critical again, critical re- re- response team or the fuck that um, that Trudeau put together. And Bill Blair is famous for many things. Sandy, what was your favorite Bill Blair moment? I mean, I got to mention Tavis, uh, which was such a disastrous or perhaps depending uh, what what position you stand in very successful program that fucking Bill Blair r- ran in Toronto when he was police chief that just criminalized and brutalized black communities and communities of color uh, in the city of Toronto and uh, was just a really disgusting um, anti-black program that he put in place. And so I have no faith um, that him being on this file will lead to anything good. He's into a type of tough approach to criminal justice that just means that he's interested in criminalizing as many people as possible uh, to create the smoothest way through for him. Yeah, I, I want to just mention my favorite Bill Blair moment, which was the G20. <laughs> that motherfucker oversaw oh, <laughs> the yes. mass arrest of, I mean, there's you know, mass arrest. There's only 1,200 people arrested, who, almost all who were released without charge. And the folks who were charged um, and then convicted, it was trumped up. And yeah, yeah. I mean, we we need to be listening very, very closely to how the liberals are responding to this and how their idea of reconciliation is apparently clearing the land so that corporations can make money. Huh. Where have we heard that before? In the beginning of Canada. <laughs> Forever. Mm. History repeating itself always, or maybe history never ended. I don't know. <laughs> history has not ended yet. <laughs> uh, education. Oh, man. There's got to be a more elegant uh, transition to that. I mean, you could sing a song. It's all just a little bit of history repeating. Hey, that's not bad. Uh, for those of you who don't know, Nora's an excellent singer. And maybe we should make that a level on the podcast. <laughs> you are too. Well, <laughs> Sandy, I believe one of the levels on the podcast is that we're going to play Scrabble together. People can watch. Yeah, that is one of the levels. It's the last level. So maybe we'll, we'll make a level after that. That's um, us singing a duet of Always Me Be My Baby, which was our <laughs> karaoke du- du- duet <laughs> at one point in time back in the day. <laughs> oh, but you know what? History is repeating. I, 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 I'm loving watching the teacher strikes because I don't know about you, but I'm getting super nostalgic for the, those two weeks in November 1997 where mm. I didn't have to go to school and I just got mm-hmm. to hang out with my friends because my parents parents and my teachers were all on strike. Mm-hmm. It's like, uh, I, I can't remember if we mentioned this before on the podcast, but 
or if I just mentioned it to you in one of our chats, uh, but I, I saw a meme, I think they retweeted it on Twitter. Well, it's not quite a meme, just a little photo that said, you know, one of the, the reasons why the teachers have so much support right now um, is because of all of the kids who went through the strike um, in the 90s uh, are now the folks who are deciding who to support. We're all adults now. And we're like, yeah, no, we know <laughs> what's going on because we very much lived it at a time where we could, you know, we were still young, but we could understand uh, just what was being taken away from us in our education system. And so um, when we see another conservative government uh, in Ontario, of course, is what I'm referring to, attempting to uh, do something similar, take away uh, some really important things that people have and that, that children are able to, uh, children and youth are able to benefit from in our education system. Of course, we're going to feel nostalgic, remember that time and know exactly what the <laughs> heck is going on. And no amount of bluster from Stephen Lecce is going yeah. to be able to fool us. No, no. I, I, one of the, the weird things when, for for my education experience with being on strike was I was in a school board where uh, we went on strike again two years later in 1999. And so for fifth period, for all of grade nine, I didn't have a class, which meant that my day finished at 12. But I was trapped at school because I went to school in a different town. I couldn't get home. And uh, and so that was sweet. And, and until we got to the end of the semester and we had to make up all of the missed class. And so I spent five full days, 9 a.m. to 3 p.m. doing English class. Oh, God. It was awesome. It's like I had to read like three books in a week. <laughs> oh, my gosh. It sounds awful. Yeah. I mean, there were kids that were stuck in religion for that long. So, I mean, or geography. God, that would be so horrible in grade nine. <laughs> yeah. Ugh. But you know what? We still support our teachers. It was no big deal. <laughs> yeah. So the the this is such an important fight. Um, it risks being uh, one of the biggest labor actions uh, in Canada and Canadian. No, I'm not about to say Canadian history because people keep talking about it as if 1997 never happened. Right. There was a full general strike of all five teacher unions. Of course, there's only four teacher unions now. That's because two of the teacher unions from 1997 became one mm -hmm. union. Mm -hmm. Um. And, and the, so the conservatives are, you know, they have a whole bill of things that they want to change. They want to make classes bigger. They want to force uh, kids to learn online, which is such a fucking disaster and a bad idea. Um, and, and they've put this little fucking twerp, uh, frat boy from Western in charge, uh, this guy, Stephen Lecce, who's definitely like Lecce is a very good last name for him. I have to say, um, <laughs> as long as you don't know what it means, if you know what it means and you're like, oh, gross, but he definitely sounds like a Lecce. <laughs> I agree with that. I think that's accurate. <laughs> I mean, Doug, Doug Ford is not like a super strategic. Well, he's a strategic guy, but he's probably the kind of guy that looked at around the caucus and was like, Leche, perfect. Let's put him on education. <laughs> <laughs> oh god. Um and so there's been there's been rotating strikes. Um the strikes have been going really strong. Uh I I don't know. It, like this is this seems like a, a a showdown that the conservatives think they can win um and are getting some help from like journalists who are not doing a good job explaining what the fuck is going on. But the support that I'm seeing seems pretty strong. It seems like, you know, even if parents are getting tired of having their kids at home cuz fuck like who wouldn't be tired of that? I mean, I think that the unions are doing a really good job to get their message out that this is about protecting the quality of the classroom experience. Class sizes, supports for kids that need it. 
and resisting this ridiculous online education promise. Absolutely. I mean, they, the conservative government is clearly trying to um, make this about compensation. They've tried, you know, even though, you know, the the unions aren't talking about uh, wages and salaries, they've tried to like say, oh, no, this is about a full compensation package, including benefit. They've come up with a really convoluted messaging um, to try to switch it around. But it's very clear that actually what the teachers are really concerned about is the quality of education, the quality of education they're going to be able to provide. And so we think that that's a, a really important message um, that you know, we can talk about more broadly, not just uh, with respect to Ontario. Like, what are some of these issues here? Um, and, you know, I kind of want to start with this online education piece uh, because I think that we uh, can count on seeing this come up again and again and again mm -hmm. from conservative governments who think that online education is going to be the way to save money or to be able to talk about education in a way that seems forward thinking, that seems cutting edge, uh, it seems like it's something that's going to support innovation in learning. And, you know, I think that uh, it's up to us our listeners um, and people who are concerned about education to really learn what they mean when they say online education so that we can bust some holes in this because um, there is absolutely no reason why people should be forced to engage in a mandatory online education um, structure. Exactly, exactly. Sorry, I just saw Glenn Murray tweeting, uh, who some folks will remember as being a minister of universities and colleges in Ontario, who had a harebrained scheme that he tried to push through too. Um, I, I would just, I just had to reply to him because he's trying to say that the Ontario government is not doing enough to help the folks at Grassy Narrows, whose water is poisoned from mercury uh, runoff from pulp and paper mills. It's like, I love politicians that retire and then forget that they were fucking responsible. <laughs> like, they were government? They were in government. They were government. Oh, my God. Um, the online education piece is so important because online education has the potential to fuck everything up in, in no in no exaggeration. We absolutely need to learn in environments we are, where we are with people. We need to be together with other people to learn. Learning is not you listen to your teacher. Learning is you also listen to your classmates. You listen to yourself out loud and go, wait a minute, maybe I'm thinking about this wrong. You have moments where you're not learning and then you learn. Like, I mean, you're not in formal learning sessions and then you, you learn in informal ways. And online education destroys all of that. It puts a kid into his bedroom with a computer and says, okay, now you're going to learn grade 11 biology. And it does not fucking work that way. And the fact that Ford has decided that that's going to be going to be one of their main um, promises and, you know, Ford's promising it. Just Jason Kenny will promise it like fucking next year. Uh, Scott Moe will probably be like, oh, I, I wish I thought of that. Oh, um, may or may not put it forward. <laughs> um, but it needs to be fought with every every tool every bit of energy that that teachers have because and teachers know this i mean i'm not saying this because teachers don't know this but it is possible that maybe folks outside the education system have not really thought about it but 
Online education really will destroy public education in Ontario. And allowing any any uh, mandatory online learning is just such a bad idea, uh, especially coming from a government that can't even like run its own online stuff very well. I mean, there's years and years and years and years of scandals with governments of all stripes in Ontario screwing up online stuff. And so the 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 response the the actions have been very wonderful uh, the pickets have all seemed very wonderful and so tons of solidarity and support to everybody who's fighting for uh, for education and for their students and also big support to every parent who has just been like okay we're going to weather this and we're going to do what we can to you know not not complain too too much that our that our kids are home <laughs> Now, I, I kind of want to talk a little bit about online education and why it's not great. And what, um, like for folks who haven't thought about it that much, like I want to uh, break it down for you, for those of you who have never taken an online class, what it's like. Because uh, I have. Um, and mm. uh, let me tell you uh, what Nora is saying about um, how uh, the quality is so easily uh, disintegrated once you get into an online class is very, very true. Now, it's so obvious that what the government is thinking on this is, okay, if we get some online classes going, what we can do, likely what they're thinking, is uh, it'll be uh, cheaper for them. They can maybe have um, a class size that's much larger or video um, some lessons and get it out to more people. Uh, I guarantee the thought here is not to invest in online education, but it's to... Um, make online education an alternative for a more uh, resource-heavy, uh, you know, in-person, <laughs> who would have thought, uh, education program like the one we have right now. But what happens uh, with online education is, in fact, if you want it to be at all useful, you actually have to put far more resources into it than you would mm -hmm. if you are having a regular classroom. And there's uh, several reasons for this. When you're teaching children or youth, kids learn in different ways. And if you are in a classroom with them where you're interacting with them in person, you can respond to their needs. You can see that, you know, this child may need um, more visual assistance. This child may need uh, more things written down. This child may need more support. This child works better in a team, whatever, and support their learning in a way that is responsive to who they are. In an online education system, you can't really do that. And so you need to spend more time, if you're going to do it right, more time engaging with the students. Another way that students learn is by engaging with each other. In an online situation, you have to virtually create that or to like manufacture a conversation, like almost like a forum. And it doesn't work the same way. It doesn't work. You can't just engage in a question and answer in the same way in an online forum because online courses typically aren't time constrained. And so you might be having a conversation with your teacher over a period of three days um, where you're losing the ability to really respond to one another and to think in the moment about a critical piece of information that maybe you're trying to, uh, to give to somebody. And so what you have is a really disjointed um, situation where you're trying to engage with material 
whenever you can, sort of, because when you when you have an online education system mm-hmm. that or an ed- class that isn't time constrained, and most of them are not, I don't, I've never heard of one that is. Um, you kind of fit it in when you can, when you're in front of the computer. There's lots of distractions around you. It is not the type of learning environment that is supportive uh, for for children and youth, certainly, and uh, generally for for most people, will find it really difficult to stay on top of an online uh, class uh, because it's it's so uh, impersonal. It's so uh, detached uh, from uh, from you know being in like a classroom setting uh, where you're engaging with the material um, in a focused way. And so the only way to really um, get around those those hu- those obstacles is to really really invest and have lots of opportunities uh, for kids uh, to be able to engage with their professors or their teachers when they need to um, uh, to be able to engage with one another when they need to and that will take a lot of resources and staff uh, to be on top of um, an online class and so in absence of that, which there will be, because they don't want this to cost money. They want it to save money. This is going to be an educational disaster, uh, certainly for Ontario and wherever else it comes up. I don't know a place that's done it right. Yeah, totally. I mean, online education, the only way that it works is if you're an adult, I think, and you're able to be disciplined Mm -hmm. to engage in the exact way that you have to. And even then it's a slog. I mean, I've taken a bunch of online classes as well. I had to take them because of a distance kind of a problem to finish my master's. And so I took a couple and I was very lucky because everyone in my class was someone I knew, was someone I was in class with um, in real life. And so I knew every person I was interacting with and I knew what they were like and and, and whatever. And, and I was thinking to myself that had it been the case that I was with strangers, this would have been just totally weird, like so sterile and difficult and and again like you need to have that discipline to engage properly with the material to imagine someone in grade 11 or grade 12 having that level of discipline is completely out to lunch which i think is a good way to describe doug ford i mean this this piece of shit like did he even like finish high school like not that you have to finish high school but if you're gonna fucking fuck with the entire system i want someone that at least is fucking been in the system uh, for a period of time that's more significant than like you know up to grade 11 or whatever the fuck um he is he's looking to transform ontario Uh, the evidence of that is in a lot of his different policies and i think that he thought that the education system would be like it was a good moment to have a showdown with teachers there hasn't been a massive showdown with teachers uh, really, uh, in uh, since since the Harris years, and 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 they're doing everything differently than the Liberals. The Liberals were very smart in how they fucked over teachers, which was that they were very friendly uh, to teachers. They they didn't cut um, the funding in education uh, too much or even at all. If I'm getting if I'm if I'm not wrong, um, so like core funding to the system didn't go down, and um, and when they wanted to impose a contract, they just were like fuck the law and they imposed a contract. And they rendered uh, strike decisions um, meaningless because the contract was already in place. And, of course, they got the wrist slap later on. And um, that's how courts work is that there's a delay. And that's why the liberals went about it the way that they did. 
Ford is just like, ah, you know what? Like, fuck it. They're gonna, it's going to be take it or leave it. And they want to use our kids as pawns. They can use our kids as pawns. And it's like, well, you're, you're, you're doing that actually, Doug. That's what, that's what you're doing. And, um, and the, the fight back has been really wonderful. My only concern or criticism, I guess, is the days of rotating strike, I think, are much more difficult for people to deal with than a total strike. And so I don't know what the kind of discussions are uh, like at the at the four union um, uh, level. I know that there's they actually have canceled a day of strike or have called one of the unions has called off a day of strike. So maybe they're going back to the table to negotiate. But but rotating strikes are difficult because um, it's an inconvenience that you can't really plan for, whereas a full strike is an inconvenience that you can plan for. So you can start to say, okay, well, I'm going to have four days in a row. I need to have them do something versus a Monday here and a, and a Tuesday there and a Wednesday next week after that. So that might be something for, for people to, to debate um, after, I think, once this is all, all, all said and done. And, you know, there's a lot of, of interesting uh, um, evidence to show, like, that you can have a full strike and, and still not really lose the support of the population because the Br- British Columbia Teachers Federation, I mean, they had a, a five-week strike at the end of the school year and at the beginning of the next school year, um, five weeks in total. And um, they didn't lose the support of the population of BC too much. I mean, that was a really difficult, those are difficult times to not be in school for kids, obviously the end of the school year and the beginning of the school year, but their strike mm-hmm. was really important. Now, those folks are still in a battle uh, over their, over, over classroom conditions and over a lot of things that they were fighting for in those contracts. And so, you know, this is a general trend that education is under massive attack in, in Canada. And, and, and we need to be really concerned about that because, you know, everything that Canada is wonderful for, what we're known for internationally being a livable, kind kind of place to live, that's all because a lot, or a lot of it goes back to our public education system because people are able to access high quality education for free. And there are forces out there that want to make sure that the system is dismantled. And we need to keep our eye on the prize and, and watch those forces and watch the, the way that they're attacking education and be very strong in opposition to those attacks. And so if you're, if you're listening and you're not a teacher, or you don't have a kid in the system, you have to like, you know, next day of strike, go down, go down to the school and see if there's a picket line outside and, and join or make sure that you're writing letters to the editor because, you know, that helps to tell the newspaper where the readers are at. That's a really important exercise to engage with just to say, you know, I support my teachers and I think what Doug Ford's doing to or trying to do to the education system is bad. I, I just want to like uplift one thing that Nora was saying, like, this is all about money. Like I want, <laughs> you know, the government is, is uh, trying to uh, take money out of the system for sure. But they're also trying to put that that <laughs> money in the hands of private actors. And so I, I you know, they're not saying it uh, publicly but these these things that they're that they're trying to do um, are going to be a benefit to private companies. I'm sure that they've got some private company at the ready to provide this online um, system for for classrooms and, and and so on. And so just keep those things in mind as well um, as we think about how our public education system um, is going through a serious challenge right now from these governments um, across Canada who. Um, are interested in dismantling all sorts of public services that we have. 
Well, I'm, you mentioned the current, and we can move, I think, to, to talk about the broader issue of mental health, because I think it plays a huge role both in, in this struggle, but also in higher education, too. But there was mm-hmm. another um, current segment where uh, Matt Galloway was talking uh, to people about the wonders of private school. Did you catch this? No, I didn't. Oh, it was it was so bad. It was like it was the whole thing was an advertisement for private schools. Oh man! And the 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 I mean the, the hook was well. There's all these strikes, and so many parents are moving to to private schools. And then you know at the very end, they had I think eight minutes to any kidder from the people for education. And she was like, "Well, no, most people have not. Like the number of people that have gone from private from public to private because the work action is really really small." But they set the whole segment up. Can you imagine having that kind of money to just make that flip sort of decision? No, oh. <laughs> no, I can't. <laughs> what? <laughs> How bizarre. They start off by saying, um, yes, and so because of the teacher's action, the private school, and here's a mom with kids, two kids in private schools. And what is the reason that she's so excited about her private school? Smaller classes. Go figure. Do you think Galloway brought that back to the... <laughs> to the teacher's struggle, which is like, that's the principal issue is the smaller classes. No, no, no. It was just like, oh yeah, there's more services in the private system. Uh, her, her son, who's, uh, I forget, learning disabled, I think, and gifted, had many more services in the private system, which is a fucking, like, I fucking bet he does. Like, I know people that have taught in the private system. Uh, uh, Newsflash, the education there is fucking bad. Like, unless you are a wealthy fucking motherfucker, you are only paying, like, I mean, only paying, paying $15,000 to $30,000. The education you're getting is not... It's not great. You're buying yourself into a class. You're not buying a better education. Let's be fucking real. And then he was like, well, we gotta gotta talk about costs, right? We, We gotta... Like, I'm sorry, I'm going to have to ask you this, but how much do you pay? And she's like, oh, yeah, I, you know, it's, it is, this is not an accessible thing for everybody for sure. Uh, we pay, you know, we pay $20,000 a year per child, but this is a priority. You know, we've, we've saved money for this. Uh, we've cut back on our spending. Uh, we've just rearranged our lives to make this possible. <laughs> Uh, and it's like what what the oh sorry do you mean rearrange your lives like you guys became fucking bank robbers was that how you rearranged your life because okay that i understand (laughs) but what the fuck anyway fuck the cbc because guess what the defunding the cbc campaign is about the exact same same fucking thing i can't believe you folks are so negligent so it's like watching someone self-immolate on the radio listening to them, I guess. So bizarre. And so for this last little bit, we just wanted to talk a little bit about uh, mental health and education. Uh, The way that especially post-secondary education institutions have decided to uh, deal with mental health, which is to say not deal with mental health at the fuck all, (laughs) um, is really fucking terrible. And I cannot wait for the day where like our social um, consciousness around this is enough for us to turn around and recognize how fucking offensive it is that uh, these campuses are looking at these students who are struggling with so much, uh, you know, uh, money issues, um, the, the, the stress of like the credentialism and competition and all of the, the gross shit that comes with an education system that is like um, beholden. Uh, to a private sector, a a job market that kind of rules everything and say, here's some puppies. (laughs) Oh, my God. Pet these for half an hour 
and you, we have dealt with mental health. It is so disgusting to me that that is the approach. You know, the students are waiting in these lines uh, or wait lists uh, for counselors for so long. And by that time, it's like you've already failed. You need to start thinking about these things, universities and colleges, as issues that are caused not by like an individual student having uh, just, you know, a particular type of brain chemistry, although I'm not discounting that. But you also need to think about the systemic issues that you are a part of, that you Mm -hmm. cause, that exacerbate something that is already there. And a failure to look at those things and a resistance to look at those things is going to end up with the mental health crisis on campuses getting worse. Well, the the last uh, couple of weeks, there have been high profile voices from the higher education sector who have been talking about the need to do something. This is so, so, so bad because there have been uh, suicides on various campuses. Uh, It was the president of the University of Ottawa where there have been several suicides on campus and the president of the University of British Columbia, who has himself experienced poor mental health uh, over the course of his life and has had a couple of suicide attempts. And, you know, they're like, yeah, we're really concerned about our students. This is really important to us, blah, blah, blah. Do these guys ever talk about the cost of education or the fact that you have to work three jobs while also like to be able to afford the cost of your education and rent or that uh, life is just so much more difficult than it has been before for young people? I mean, that's the that young people can't get jobs that young people are expected to do internships that literally pay zero dollars <laughs> as part as part of an education system. It is it's just so obvious that that there's so many stressors that are involved in, a, in the post-secondary education system now that did not exist 10, well, maybe 10, that did not exist 20, 25, 30 years ago. And that is why we're seeing some of this um, the, this mental health crisis really exacerbated. Oh, totally. Like the stress of failing is like shoots through the roof when you can't afford to retake those classes. <laughs> Like, mm-hmm. you know, it's it's as mm-hmm. basic as that. And and the difference between being able to go to university and pay for your fees off of, uh, you know, six, six week of work in the summer, which was the norm from the 70s to the early 80s, versus now you have to literally mortgage your fucking life to be able to pay for your for your tuition fees. It's it's night and day. It's totally night and day. And there's no number of counselors that will be able to fix that. Period. Like, not no. possible. You cannot counsel someone out of a, a, a crisis that has been made by your material conditions. You have to address those material conditions. And the university leadership in this entire country is uniform in their desire to see students pay more and more and more and for their universities to be less accessible and more fucking hellish. It's like the the idea, the only students on campus who would benefit from counseling alone are the students who are wealthy. And so that's mm-hmm. like the that's like the solution is to just make sure that that wealthy students with mental health struggles are the only ones that can actually get help because students who need the counseling and need the debt relief and need the the help to just get by and who are taking care of family and who can't get sick or injured because they can't afford uh, all of the supplementary costs that go around with being sick or injured it's just it's so it's so disgusting to me as well. And and Sandy, I think of you and I in these meetings with bureaucrats, you know, years and years and years mm-hmm. ago, where they would tell us like, oh, mental health is a really big uh, priority of ours on campus. And it's like, 
okay, so in this boardroom, like, you say this, and then in the boardroom, like, just down the hall, they're literally fucking planning the full destruction of the public education system and downloading those costs mm-hmm. onto students that will lead to suicide. Like, literally, there is a direct line. Mm-hmm. And and they would be like, uh, what are you talking about? <laughs> Like we just we just wanted some more ideas of how to get uh, counselors to students and what sort of things that they like, so we can get those things to them for half an hour once a semester. <laughs> That's cool. That was what we really brought you here in this meeting for. So, cats or dogs? What do you, th- that's what we wanted to know. <laughs> and there were people that applauded that in those meetings. There were there were fake student representatives. Although you know you're at a school right now where, where tuition fees are are on another planet. And what was the solution that they brought in for you? I mean, we they we did have dogs. It's true, but they also brought in miniature ponies. So you know, a step ahead, a cut above in the American uh, post-secondary education system. This is a public school too, so you know the fact that they were able to do that right on <laughs> miniature Amazing. fucking ponies. It is. It's just so offensive. It's like, come on, come on. Can we get real here? And to bring it back to quality of education, it's like, how can you absorb um, your education, the thing that maybe you're there for, the thing that you could be passionate about in life, the thing that could that you could be destined to do, if you are so worried about the way that the whole education system is structured, like destroying you, it it doesn't work. It doesn't work no. that way. And so, you know, uh, for for all of these university and college administrators, like God, I just wish that you all were so. like devoted to education that you would say that this is not okay uh, to the provinces and say, we need you to invest more. We need uh, tuition to go down. We're refusing to, to make tuition go up anymore. And in fact, we're, we're going to reduce tuition and you guys will just have to respond to it because you know what, as administrators, you all have a lot of power and I'm just so, frustrated by everybody looking at this problem and whenever uh, there's some sort of discussion about it being like god what are we going to do this generation man mental Mm. health there's nothing we can do about that oh well it's like you guys you all have the power to do something about it they're just spending too much time on the computer yeah they're spending too much time on the computer they don't know how to interact with people they need to get outside they need to interact with pets and blah 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 blah. it's like no no it's your fault Mm mm-hmm you have the power. Yeah, and and that's why I think that the that the strike is so important because that is the that is the the workers doing something about it. They're the ones saying we see the future of the system. We see the impact of this in our class. I mean, like my kids are in kindergarten. They're in a class of nineteen. My niece is in a class of twenty seven or twenty nine kindergartens in uh, in the GTA and just well just outside Toronto. Jesus, with one teacher, <laughs> I just. With one teacher, yeah. And, like, in my kids have two teachers because they had a, a, a practice teacher and she's in the classroom the whole year. And they also have supports for the kids that need extra supports. And so, I, I mean, like, Quebec system is definitely not ultra superior at all uh, to Ontario system. But 
the the idea that you can just warehouse kids and then not expect there to be any negative impacts on those kids no that's not how it works and the government knows that's not how it works and frankly they don't care right that's what that's what this comes down to is that they don't give a rat's ass about public health care or public education they want to enrich their friends and so the the only way that we can stop that the only way we can stop greed wealth accumulation i mean wet soden is showing us this as well is through like power that is built at the grassroots by the people who are directly affected by negative decisions and so if that is going on strike if that is blocking rail if that's building houses along a proposed pipeline route to stop that pipeline this is the only way that we can confront power and so Everybody, all of those those movements that I just mentioned, the work you're doing is important and it's critical and you will win. And even if you don't win tomorrow or win in two weeks, we will see the impact of your fight in the future, just like we can see the impact of the fight from 1997 in the lives of those 30 and 40 year olds who remember fondly being on strike. (laughs) 